0: Please turn with me to Romans chapter 6, returning now to these uh, verses in the next section of this letter, verses 12 through 14 are a bit of a, a transition and um, so we'll begin the reading at verse 12, we'll read through verse 19, um, you might think that we're in trouble, if you were to turn around and look at that clock you'd think that time was flying, um, See, it is, isn't it? Now, you know, you may be thinking, well, we're going to be done in a, in a nanosecond, but we're really in trouble because I have no idea what time it is, and, and but I have a watch. I have a watch here. But this watch is as meaningless as that clock, so, so you're still in trouble, that's right. So look with me at Romans chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 12, and we'll read these verses together and then, and then dig into them a bit. God speaking to us through the Apostle Paul, encouraging, admonishing, exhorting us, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin. As instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. This is God's good word for us as people. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Lord Jesus, we, um, we need you Um, we need your word. Thank you that your word directs us to you. And now we need your spirit, Father and Son, uh, to come and open our hearts and open our eyes and open our ears so that we can lay hold of these things, understand these things, and by your grace, benefit from them. You're a good God. Show us your goodness again as we think your thoughts after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a a wonderful piece of graffiti, great piece of graffiti. Maybe some of you uh, have seen this. Maybe you saw it on the editorial page of a newspaper or or in the comic section of your paper something like that. It's a great piece of graffiti, and I may not have this exactly right. It involves three philosophies of life, and it actually involves three philosophers, and I told the class this morning that I'm, I'm not a student of philosophy. I've picked up a few things uh, along the way. So I know some names and, and you know, a couple of ideas. Um, so I may have this a bit wrong, uh, at least with respect to the first two of these three philosophers. I know I have it right with respect to the third one. I know I have that right. Um, and the little piece of graffiti goes like this. To be is to do. Martin Heidegger. To do is to be. Jean-Paul Sartre. Dooby dooby doo. Francis Albert Sinatra. <laughs> now I may be wrong about the first two, but I know I got the third one right. And and actually, that little bit of graffiti um, does kind of point us in the direction of a, a question that has puzzled people across the centuries. And. And that is, that is sort of this, is what I do the thing that defines who I am, or is who I am the thing that defines what I do? And I think to that, or, or, or is it Frank Sinatra, his would, be the, his would be the third philosophy of life, who gives a rip, I did it my way, you know. Um, but I think to the end of that conversation, Paul would simply say, to us as Christians... Be who you are. Be who you are. Uh, you know, to do is to be, to be is to. Paul would speak into that conversation and would speak to us as Christians, as those who have embraced Christ, and he would say, be who, in fact, you are. Be who you are. Now, we come to these verses, verses 12 through 29, and we really, for the first time in this letter, as I've pointed out to you before, are given some things to do. Now, they're not the things that maybe that we'd like to to be told to do. I I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago that there are three words that are important words, critical words in this passage, Uh, the words know, consider, and present present. That's kind of where we are today as we come to this passage. After after 158 verses, after five and a half chapters, after here at Christ the King, after more than a year of preaching in this book, we're finally really given something to do, right? We want to do stuff, right? We're practical, pragmatic American people. We want a to-do list. Well, here, now we're finally being given something to do. To do. We're, we're being admonished to act. We're being admonished to act. And I want to suggest to you that there are three characteristics, three features to this, this acting that is being encouraged and that we're being admonished with respect to. Let me give you these little headings. Just just some ways to sort of hang this text on some pegs first place this acting or this act is a decisive act it's a decisive act this presenting and then second let me just let me just suggest this that this act is an intensely personal act and then third this is an extremely sober act it's a decisive act It's a personal act, and it is a deeply sobering act, this business of presenting where we are today. Now, let's take this first point first. It is a decisive act. Let's sort of remember where we are. Again, after all of these verses, after all of these chapters, after all of the stuff that we've considered It's finally, when you come to chapter 6, that the apostle gives us something to do. He gives us a a to-do list, if you will. Now, it's not the to-do list that we're looking for. Again, he will come to very specific encouragements in chapters 12 through 15. You can read ahead if you'd like. You can see what all of those specific encouragements are. Very, very specific things. But I want you to notice Paul's method. His method really is very different from ours. The way he thinks about the Christian life, the way he approaches the Christian life, the things that he gives us to do before getting to the particulars, before enumerating the specific things that we're to do and be engaged in, he gives us these three things, remember? He admonishes us to know Three times in this text, chapter 6, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 15, and then in chapter 7, verse 1, he says to these folks, don't you know, don't you know these things? These are things that you as Christians should know, and that presupposes the use of the mind. That's what we... We talked about a couple of weeks ago, there is, a, there, is a, there is a mental aspect to this Christian life. There is a content to this Christian faith. There are things that we are to know. Paul says in Romans 12 that we're to be transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds, right? So there is truth that's to be engaged. There is the word of God that is to be engaged. We're to know these things. Jesus, I prayed this In the pastoral prayer, I prayed this because it's stuck in my mind. My mind very often feels like that clock, but there are some things that stick. And it's John 8.32 where Jesus does say to his disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you remember from a couple of weeks ago that knowing for a Hebrew person is not an intellectual exercise. There's a line that gets crossed where knowing becomes an intensely personal thing. These are things that matter. You will know the truth. You will engage it. You'll be engaged by it. You will find that it's having having an effect in your life. It's doing something to you. Before I came uh, to Florida back in 1991, Barb and I were living in Indiana. We moved to Orlando to, to start a church there. Many of you know that. And I had a good friend who said what's going to be your goal what's going to be your objective when you go to Orlando and I you know my first inclination is to say you know just show up just show up i mean woody allen said 80% of living is just showing up it's probably the only thing he's gotten right in his life but he did get that right what's going to be your goal and then he said to me he said to me here's what i would make my goal mastering the bible Mastering the Bible. And I've thought about that. It's been 20 years. And I think I would just turn it a bit and say that the aim is not to master the Bible, the aim is to be mastered by the Bible. This this truth is a vital and living thing. It's not an intellectual exercise. And at some point, you cross the line from simply knowing to the place where these things captivate you, capture your heart, and you can't get away from them. It begins to work in you like leaven in a lump of dough. That's what we want. That's what Paul is thinking about. Don't you know these things? And you cross a line then from knowing to considering. You start to contemplate and and reflect and meditate upon these things. And this is a hard thing to do, isn't it? When you create a to-do list, I doubt that there's anybody in this room. Forgive me. I mean, I know it's not on my to-do list. I doubt there are very many of us in this room who put at the top of our to-do list, meditate. Reflect, consider, contemplate. It's a lost art in this pragmatic, efficient, effective culture in which we live. This culture does not encourage what Paul is encouraging us to do. No, no. And then consider and reflect. And he seems, it seems to me, not to be able to get away from the very things that he's encouraging people to reflect upon. He's saying, in effect, don't you know who you are? For someone to raise this question that's raised in verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? For someone even to raise that question to have this sort of calculus operating in my head. Okay, we've mentioned this before. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. Great recipe. Let's have more forgiveness by having more sin. For a person even to raise that question or consider that as an option is entirely to misunderstand the power and the force and the truth and the depth of the salvation, the gospel that is being communicated to us here. Right? Because forgiveness is not just about my justification. It's not just about my forgiveness. It's not just about my legal standing in the presence of God. It's not just about being accepted. It's about being set free from something that kills me. It's about being delivered from a bondage, about being freed from death. Paul says, how, how can that possibly be? And then he goes on to remind them, this is who you are. Not only are you justified, not only are you accepted, that's chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Not only have you gained access, planted in the very presence of the holy God who has become your father because of the cross of Christ. Not only are those things true, but chapter 6, verse 2 and following, you've you've been buried with Christ. You died to sin, buried, raised to newness of life. See, something has not only happened for you, but something has happened to you. Right? Died, buried, raised to live in newness of life. And so Paul then says in verse 12 of of chapter 6, there's a therefore there, right? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. See, because of all of this, therefore... Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. You've been raised. You're dead to sin. Something significant, profound has happened. And so instead of presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, now present yourselves to God. Present yourselves to God, right? Be who you are. Be who you are. Present yourselves to God. Now, there's a really, really significant thing that's going on with this word present. It appears five times in this text. It appears twice in verse 13. It appears once in verse 16. And then it appears two more times in verse 19. Five times in the space of eight verses. Anytime something shows up five times in the space of eight verses, it's like cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Pay attention. Something important is happening here. And Paul says in verse thirteen, "Don't go on presenting yourselves to anyone to any uh, to um, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't present yourself in that way. But in fact, turn and present yourselves to God. See, here's an illustration. That's." That's what the demon-possessed man did in Mark chapter 6, right? You think about it. It's a great illustration of what is going on in the life of every Christian. I've said this to this congregation before. I want to say it again. The miracles in the New Testament are not there simply to show us the power of Jesus, they are to teach us about ourselves. And you read Mark chapter 5. I said six, I'm sorry. Mark chapter 5, the story of the demoniac who is possessed by a legion of demons. Jesus acts decisively to free him. And when you see him next, where is he? Seated in his right mind, clothed and at the feet of Jesus. It's a wonderful picture. Something decisive happened in him. Paul is saying something as decisive has happened in you, not just for you. And now he's encouraging us, in effect, to emulate the demoniac. To present ourselves to Jesus. Present our members to Jesus as instruments to be employed by him. Here's the other significant thing. It really is a powerful thing, and it has to do with the tenses of the verbs that you find in verse 13. And I want to say to you, I don't tell you these things to show off. Somebody said to me a couple of weeks ago, I feel really smart when I leave your sermons. (laughs) I hope, I know this person understands And I hope you understand, I don't tell you these things so that you can be smart or so that you can think I'm smart. I tell you these things because I am a desperate man. And I need desperately to understand the truth of the gospel. And the tenses of these verbs are very significant for this reason, and I alluded to it just a second ago. Literally, what Paul is writing in verse 13 is this, do not... Go on presenting your members to sin. But present yourselves to God. Two different tenses. In the former, it's a perfect imperative, which suggests a habitual presenting of myself to sin. But in the later, it's this unusual tense in the Greek language. Unusual because we don't have anything quite like it in the English. It's called the aorist, and it refers to a decisive thing. So what is Paul saying? Don't go on presenting yourselves to sin anymore. How can you? It's unthinkable. Sin will not reign in you. So don't go on presenting yourself, but in a decisive way, turn and present yourselves to God. You see? It's a decisive thing. It is a self-conscious thing. It is looking at the reality of where I have come from, where I have been, the reality of what God has done, and it is turning in a decisive manner in a different direction, presenting myself now to God. Weddings are incredibly powerful and poignant things. Most of you know we've had two of them in the last 16 months. I have two pictures. I remember a lot of the pictures that are in the albums of these two weddings, but there are two pictures that stand out really in a kind of stark contrast to the other pictures from these two weddings. And they are both pictures of my middle daughter and me before the wedding ceremony has actually begun. In the first of them, we're in the foyer in the narthex. She's on my arm. I'm looking straight ahead at one and the same time loving and hating what is about to happen. And my daughter, who is on my arm, is looking to her right, over my shoulders and a bit behind her. She's looking out through the open doors from the narthex out to the world outside, and there is a wistful expression on her face. I don't know what she was thinking at that moment, but what I see in her face is a looking at the life that she is leaving behind. And the next picture is just inside the sanctuary, just at the head of the center aisle, just as we are turning to go down the center aisle, where at the end of that aisle is her heart's desire. In the one picture, she is turning away from everything that is behind her. And in the next picture, in a a decisive, definitive act, she is turning toward her new life. My friends, you are the bride of Jesus. Jesus is my husband. I am his bride. And this husband has emptied himself of all glory and privilege. He has emptied himself of life itself. He has emptied himself of his righteousness, the cloaks, the garments of his beauty and glory. He has taken my flesh to himself, and he has suffered indignity, the indignity of the cross, in order to be buried lifeless in a grave so that he might be raised to newness of life. My husband has overcome sin and death. And my husband stands at the end of the aisle and summons me to turn away from what is behind me and to embrace my heart's desire to present myself to him. That's what Paul is talking about here. Leaving behind But never did say. I can tell you one thing about Leslie. She's a great kid. She loves being Leslie Malone most of the time. She loves being Leslie Malone Sykes much more than she ever loved being Leslie Malone. That's what Paul is summoning us to. Leave it behind. And in a decisive way, turn and present yourself to Jesus. Now, we're going to look at this some more in the weeks to come because the words are there again. They're buried in this text, and we've got to deal with them. Let's be clear about this. This becomes a way of life for me. This becomes habitual, right? I wish that I could tell you that that 40 years ago when I became a Christian, that decisive acting was the last time I had to act in that way. You know what I mean? I find that the Christian life is a life constantly of turning away from this and presenting myself to my husband who loves me and laid down his life for me. I've said to you this is the basis for understanding the Christian life, and I believe it. The basis of the Christian life is not your favorite to-do list. The basis of the Christian life is turning from the life that is behind me to embrace the life that is mine in Jesus. And it becomes a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, decisive turning and presenting myself to Jesus. And let me just say these other two things very quickly before we come to this table and have the opportunity to be reminded of all of this. Let me say these other two things. This is also a personal act. It is a decisive act. I want to suggest to you, I learned this from Francis Schaeffer years and years and years ago. It is a moment-by-moment, day-after-day thing that we do. It is a decisive act presenting myself to Jesus, and it is personal. And when I say that it is, in pers- is personal, what I mean is that it takes in the whole of who I am as a person, the whole of who I am. Notice in this passage how Paul distinguishes in verse 12, your mortal bodies, and verse 13, your members from yourselves right? You hear that? I think there is some profound and important, and I'm going to use a big word here, okay? Again, forgive me. Words are helpful things. There is some important biblical anthropology in this passage. Anthropology is simply the study of anthropoi and we be they. We are anthropoi. We are people. There's a very interesting insight into biblical anthropology, what human beings are, how we're constituted, how we're put together, how we're made. And Paul differentiates mortal bodies, these bodies which are connected to this world, which labors under a curse, and which will die. These mortal bodies will die because they're connected to this world. And in these mortal bodies lie well, a whole host of our problems. He distinguishes, and we'll come back to some of this stuff. He distinguishes our mortal bodies from our members. And I really believe that what he's doing is moving from the physical and material stuff of which I'm made to the totality of my faculties. Not just my body, but my mind, my emotions, my desires, my longings, my members, Right? All of my faculties, the totality of my faculties. So he's moving from mortal bodies to members, kind of, although these things can't be separated radically, he's kind of moving from the physical part of me to the deep spiritual and soulish part of me. And what he's saying to me as a Christian is that, that you know, even though you've been raised from death to life, and again, this is something I learned from Francis Schaefer years ago, even though there is this very real and true sense in which you've been brought from death to life, your mortal body is still connected to this world. Your members, that is your faculties still having an attachment to the world. Your mortal bodies and your faculties actually can be presented to another husband. You can do that. Sense in which the Christian is the only truly free person in the sense that I'd use it here, right? Free, free will, that whole thing. Christian is the one person who can choose to obey and choose to disobey. The Christian is a person who's in a position to present himself or herself to the new and true husband or, as Gomer did, abandon the loving husband who loves and delights in you and who pays for your freedom and turn away from that husband to embrace another. And Paul's saying, no, don't do that. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself, body, mind, heart, soul, the totality of who you are. Turn away and present to this husband who loves you the entirety of your being. The entirety of your being. I don't want to pick on the women here, okay? But you are the ones who give birth to children. And where a woman has been unfaithful in a marriage, there's something in the DNA, right, that converges in the father and the mother that indicates in that DNA that this person has been unfaithful to the true husband. I tragically, sadly, can bear the fruit of unrighteousness. And Paul's saying, don't. Later he's going to say, what benefit was there for you in it? None. Don't present yourselves anymore to a husband that enslaves, who beats you, who treats you cruelly. But turn decisively and present the totality of who and what you are to Jesus this husband who clearly loves you. Present yourselves to him in the totality of your person. And then this third thing, just very quickly, probably come back to this too because it's it's serious. This is a decisive act. It is a personal act. It entails the whole of who and what I am. And it is a sober act. And the reason that you can say and I can say and we can understand that it is sober is because this word that is translated instruments in verses 13 and 14, or in verse 13, literally means weapons. It's a term of warfare. It's used only a handful of times in the New Testament. It can be translated as it is here, instruments. But in its basic meaning, it refers to weapons. Don't present your body, don't present your faculties to sin as weapons in this warfare, but present the totality of who and what you are to your king and commanding general and lord and master and loving husband. in this warfare for righteousness. Look, we're engaged in a conflict, friends. I I, I will just confess to you my own sense of being challenged and rebuked at this point in reading a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones while I was away on vacation. If you want to enjoy your vacation, don't take Martin Lloyd-Jones with you. Way back in the 50s, Lloyd-Jones was sensitive to the fact that too much of what is referred to, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, I don't want to step on toes, I'm not here to pick a fight, too much of what is referred to as the therapeutic gospel has crept into the life of the church. And Lloyd-Jones says in this particular sermon, yes, on the one hand, the church is a hospital. Yes, it is a place where the wounded, the seriously sin sick, come for healing, but the church is a barracks as well. And we're soldiers in a fight, my friends. And the battle in the first instance is not a battle against some cultural problem, the battle in the first instance is not against some political agenda. The battle in the first instance is not out there with respect to some ethical matter. Those things are important. The battle begins in me, with me, presenting myself to this husband, king, and general, presenting the totality of who I am to be a weapon in his service, in the cause of righteousness rather than presenting myself with my body or with my faculties to a husband who never loved me never will satisfy the deepest longings of my soul as an instrument for unrighteousness it's a decisive act it's a way of living it's decisive it's personal and it involves the whole of who and what I am. And it's sober because, as John Piper so wonderfully puts it in his book on missions, life is war. It's more than that, but it is war. God, give us grace, even as we come to this table, to appropriate this grace that Jesus has secured for us that we might present ourselves to him in the totality of who and what we are together as a church, as soldiers in this fight for righteousness, for the realities of his kingdom. God, help me. God, help us. Let's pray together as we look to this table. Lord, Um, This is sober business, and I confess to you my own fear in the face of it, fear of failure, fear of falling. But I thank you that I am secure and safe because of my justification, because you've given me access and planted me firmly in your presence. And I thank you that you are much more concerned about this than I am. And I look to you in faith as do I trust my brothers and sisters and call upon you to give to us the grace needed to fight this fight in the midst of this war until you, Lord Jesus, as the conquering king return and the battle is over. Give us grace, we pray, and we ask this in your name. Amen.